There she is. Hey team, how are you? Oh, nice person. You guys. You have a new background, but you're not at the beach either. I am at the beach. You so, are? Still yeah. I'm still at the beach. Nice. All right. This is good. This is sounding good. There he is. That's all. Hello, hello. Oh, the gang's back together. Speaking of Loch Ness, my husband was just sailing with um with his friends and um they were going through the locks in Scotland. I forget the name of them, those famous locks. And then they sailed, they sailed from Norway down to Scotland, back to the North Sea. They had a pretty, they had a pretty rough crossing on the way back. And but um, like I love it. Like these Norwegians, they just they just sail. They just go. That's cool. <laughs> what, was, what was the guy that uh, recreated the uh, Polynesian TK yeah. boat trip across the Pacific? What was oh, that guy's name? He was a Norwegian. That's right. Those those Norwegians. He was Norwegian. Right? Right? Movie on it, right? Yeah, it was something. Thor right? hired all. Yeah, Thor. The Unborn Thor. It's like a you know, never. From hundreds and hundreds of years ago, almost immaculately preserved, and you can walk okay. inside them because they had like grass roofs and stuff, which grew over I guess people didn't realize it was a house underneath and they they uncovered them a few years ago and and may I've not seen archaeological archaeological um finds like it it was really really impressive did, did you commune with the standing stones and get in touch with you? <laughs> I, I I did uh, at Orkney I, I tried to uh, telepathically contact you through the standing stones but the standing stones didn't quite reach to Alaska sorry about that Aww. But what you haven't said is you actually traveled through time by touching them and you spent 40, 40 years in the past, right? Well, the, then, the, fir yeah. the first rule of the Standing Stones is you don't you don't talk about the Standing Stones. <laughs> wow. That's cool. That's cool. <laughs> no, wow. <laughs> okay. So. We're not going to talk about it. <laughs> What public speaking? Well, we could talk about standing stones. We could talk about <laughs> ancient people's uh, way of communicating uh, through presentations. I'm sure that's what those. That's really what Stonehenge was, right? It was a presentation. It was a, like an ancient PowerPoint, right? You just you know. Get out there, 3D. Right? They were they were more advanced. They three D printed their presentation. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Better. Now the thing is, I think you can take that joke or that angle and just start with a thing and then lead into, you know, it's time for us to face our fears and get used to talking to people. See, this, this is why, I mean, this is why we, you know, this is why you're my friend because, you, you know, I, I know like I don't have the credentials, so it's just I figure there's got to be some. I always thought it was a clerical error that got me on this group, but you know, but after that, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Consultants Saying Things. I'm Chris Lockhart, joined today by Phil Yanoff, Wendy Keen, Oliver Kronk. Thank you guys for joining. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, something that uh, you know, a lot of people are uncomfortable with, right? It comes into play in many aspects of, of life that we're involved with, whether you're a consultant or not. You know, an anecdote of public speaking is like the the second greatest fear after dying, right? Something like that, right? I think I think maybe going to the dentist is probably up there as well. Um, of pe- things that people don't want to do, public speaking is typically one of those things, right? You know, people are very uncomfortable typically getting in front of groups and saying anything. I do agree that people are typically afraid of it, right? People resist it. I mean, people with great ideas resist speaking in public. And I just don't understand it because they've got so much to offer. But, you know, they let this fear of being in front of a group, you know, prevent them from doing it. They think of all the excuses to it. But, you know, I think one of the reasons we wanted to uh, bring it up today is that as a consultant, there's just so many opportunities for you to do this, you know, and when we talk about public speaking, you know, this is more than just a conversation with a couple of people. This is saying, hey, how can I be in front of a group that maybe doesn't know me? And so my job is, in fact, in that moment to kind of communicate an idea in a way that uh, is useful to them, that teaches them something new or changes their thinking in some way. And I just offer it up. And again, I think it can be hard. I think it can feel like we're, um, you know, we're uh, maybe doing something that we're not just not comfortable with, but we feel like we've got no expertise at. But here's the deal, Chris. We all know how to talk. And uh, I think if we just get started, we'll realize that, um, you know, some bad things can happen, but the audience will never kill and eat you. So, um, you know, there's a lot of other things could happen. I mean, you might get embarrassed. You might not be great at this, but they're not going to shoot you. Uh, And I I think you ought to do it. But I I think that this is an opportunity to do so many good things. And I I think we ought to at least begin by getting some of those stories out of people's heads about, you know, why they ought not to do it and talk about all those good things that can come of it. The opportunities that show up just from being in that space. Um, Yeah. The the ability to share your ideas. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. And I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head, right? It's, It's one thing if you know, you are with a group of people you already know, right? And, you know, Oliver or Wendy, like in the consulting context, right? Like you could be with the team and the team wants your opinion on something. You, that's a different kind of environment. Or, or even with a client that you know really, really well, it's a different environment than if, you know, and I know Wendy and Oliver, you've both done this, where you have to get up in front of a room full of people, sometimes hundreds of people, right? And communicate an idea or a thought or a feeling or experience or something that kind of opens you to, you know, is ridicule too strong a word, right? Embarrassment, right? All of these things. I think, you know, that's kind of interesting. I mean, Oliver, you, you've been doing a lot of this recently. I know. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. <clears throat> I, yeah. And I, actually I'll, I'll share what I've learned over the last few years of doing this more. I used to do it occasionally and now I do it on a regular basis in my current role. Um, and I think, the, the biggest thing I've realized is the bigger the audience, actually, the less scary the thing is. Everyone gets really scared of getting on stage and speaking to hundreds of people. But actually, those situations I find less scary now. But, and I'll tell you why. The smaller groups are far more interactive because people are less scared, generally, about speaking in their smaller group. So in that big group, often 
people aren't going to heckle you or challenge you because they're not going to want everyone turning around in their seats and spinning around and looking at them. So I actually find now, bizarrely, the internal presentations to my company or to a team or you know, to a reasonable number of people I know, I actually find those scary because I, A, I really care about what those people think of, of me. When you're speaking, public speaking at a conference, and you don't know the audience. It doesn't really matter if you stuff up. You may never see those people again. They're unlikely to challenge you for the reason I described earlier. But it is a bigger thing. Like psychologically, I think it, it takes more to kind of get going. I think once you get going and the other piece is knowing what you're talking about, I think the, the thing that also scares me, if someone says, oh, Oliver, here's a you know, half-baked idea for a talk track. We want you to stand up and talk about this. Well, that is going to scare me because I'm like, well, how am I going to deliver that? So I think knowing what you're talking about and being reasonably well practiced and rehearsed is important. But I think if you know what you're going to talk about and you've, you, you know, you, you're happy with your material, um, and that's fine. The other thing, just before I hand over to someone else to kind of give can, their view, can is, I ask you a question before you yeah. do that bit because I had never thought about that, Oliver. That is a really interesting idea. The stakes are lower when the audience is bigger. I'd never thought about that. I mean, and it, it's kind of interesting because you're right. I mean, like you said, if you're in a small room, the guy will yell at you from the second yep. row because he doesn't yep. care, <laughs> you know, yep. or he feels yeah, like yeah. he can. He's got permission to do that, right? But also um, projecting your voice as well from a for in, in a big event, you're quite often mic'd up as a speaker. The people in the room aren't even going to be heard unless you've asked for a Q and A point. But li linked to that, the last thing I was going to say for now is. Yeah. Um, the I think there's an inverse again. Similarly, there's an inverse relationship between how much someone knows and how nervous they get about talking. I find that people that really know their stuff know where their gaps in knowledge are and are quite insecure about talking about something because they know the breadth and depth of their field and they know where they might be challenged on something or whatever. So I often find, with the best respect to salespeople, I, I love them to bits. But the people that perhaps have more confidence than I have to be careful here. I'll, I'll get shot by some of my colleagues. But you know where I'm going with this. I mean, people that just have use confidence and they don't care whether they get something wrong, they say something incorrect, or they just make something up on the spot. Those people tend to just get up on stage and talk, whereas the people that are perhaps more intellectual, more analytical, worry about whether what they're saying is factually correct, whether someone's going to challenge them. And I think there is an interesting spectrum between people who like bluff it and are just very confident all the way through to the people that have great ideas, but to your point at the beginning, Chris, if you if you can't sell those ideas and you can't convey those ideas well, you're not you're not you're not going to kind of make them a success. So those are the three pieces in my experience, particularly over the last few years of speaking. But like, but but when these so like with everything that Oliver said, everything that Phil said, why does it matter, right? Like, and you hear like you know if if I'm if I'm supposed to do some public speaking and whatever, and I need to convey an idea, tell a story convey a narrative. If I could just do that with a PowerPoint or an Excel file and here, just read this. Did you open the attachment? Just read the attachment, right? <laughs> you know, why do I need to be proficient or why should I care? Why is it a problem? Or maybe it's not a problem. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But I think because we're human, because we're human and it's that storytelling, it's that connection. There's also a matter of people 
have different styles. Um, some people don't like to read. Some people get turned off by that Excel spreadsheet. Like some people are verbal, right? So, so I think it's a matter of just giving them these different ways of explaining concepts and connecting with audience. It's that human aspect. Um, and, and Phil, you said it in the beginning, but what we often do as consultants or for if we're public speaking, because we have a reason to do so, we're trying to convey an idea or we're trying to shift minds or we're trying to teach people. And so the ability to do that well in a way that engages people is um, well-structured, um, it, 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 that actually influences people is tremendously important. And I think I think back to some of the really big presentations I've had in my career. And I often go back and think, if I would have blown that executive meeting and not connected and not make made that point about what that problem or opportunity was or wh wherever we should be going in the future, I often wonder, like, would the executives have decided not to go that route? And like, it would have been totally different. So I think it's important just to achieve the goals that we're trying to and from a consultant angle, I also think there's a little bit of an expectation as well that we are people that are polished and well-spoken. And if you have that, it's also an indicator of the intelligence and value and competency that you have in other areas. Well, well I, got a, I have a question with that, right? Because, you know, there's, I mean, Oliver brought up like the sales guy, right? We all kind of, well, I guess we're all in sales at some level, right? In some respect, we've talked about that before, but is, is it just about convincing someone to buy something? Right. I, I, you know, I've got, have I got a pitch for you, right? What can I do to put you in this cloud data analytics platform today? Is, is it just about convincing an audience or, I mean, you know, is there something? Can it, can it be about convincing ourselves? I mean, cause every once in a while I'm in front of an audience and quite frankly, I'm just testing the material. I'm just thinking, is this a good idea or is this a bad idea? Or or what questions will you have? I mean, there are a lot of times that I'm sorry, there's at least some times where I'm in front of an audience and I kind of know what I'm going to say. But what I'm really there for is their questions, because I want to see where did I what did I say that didn't land? What did I say that was confusing? Um, what did I say that didn't make any sense? Because, you know. Again, I, I feel like I'm just trying to thing out. I just want to see what happens. Do you, do you have to go in front of a live audience to do that? Is there other tips or techniques? I mean, I've, I've, I've got some anecdotes about in the past where, you know, consulting firms would videotape you presenting, right, to fake clients. And then you would spend two hours hearing all the critiques from all of your peers why did you stand like that? You, you, you've, you know? triggered, you've triggered me, Chris. I know. Why, why were you picking your nose the whole time, right? All these things, right? Yeah, okay, there's some traumas here that Oliver and Wendy need to get off them their chest so let's just go ahead and get that part taken care of. So yeah, you've you've you've, you've triggered me. I think it was 2007, 2008, my first stint in consulting, and I was told, Oliver, you you need to stop doing the programming thing and the uh, you know the dev team lead thing you're doing and we want you to go and speak at this green IT event I was working for an environmental consultancy at the time and I was like what you know this just didn't, didn't compute anyway they sent me on one of these you know presentation skills for consultants courses and they did exactly that they were, I think I even somewhere have the little mini DVD recording of of me presenting and it was it was horrendous like you watch it and you kind of just cringe and you kind of want the ground to swallow you but wait, 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 hold on. I just want to make sure you have a mini disc somewhere of you 
how do you play that back? Well, it's actually a, just. Do you remember back in the day? Some paper takers. Yeah. No, no, it's not mini disc. It's you know, in marketing, I think decided that a small compact disc or small DVD oh, yeah. was cool. Yeah. So I put it on like a small little sort of three inch DVD or whatever, whatever the mini DVD size. Okay. Anyway, um, we, we digress. Um, but it, it was painful, but it was required because I didn't realize I was going too fast. I wasn't giving eye contact, uh, a whole bunch of things and that my slides were too busy, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, I think you have to go through the pain to get good. And I'm not saying I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm amazing at this. I, I had feedback that I'm pre, I'm okay. So I think everyone can improve their public speaking. Don't get me wrong, but I was very, very bad when I was a developer. Yeah, of course I was, because all I was doing was cranking out code. I wasn't speaking to people, you know, on on a public stage, and it was painful to get there. But what's quite cool is if you have that expertise or that area to share with people, and you go through that pain of getting good at sharing stories and communicating and connecting with people, I think it, it elevates you to another level. But the thing for me is, and now with more online stuff like we're doing now, this doesn't have to always be get on a physical stage. This can be podcasting, vlogging, etc. And it gets you noticed. So oftentimes there would be, I think almost every, every of my recent career moves, like particularly job to another job, has been, oh, Oliver, we saw this talk of yours and it was recorded on YouTube or, you know, we, we, we saw you at the Gartner event. We, we'd love to have a conversation with you about our role. So it, it, it's something, it's a fear to get over because it elevates you from other people that can do your job. But if you can do your job and talk about it, that is like a real um, game changer in many cases. The differentiator, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It, it puts you. So, I mean, Wendy, do you have do you have trauma associated with? I have with trauma too. Recorded sessions. I have trauma too. So, um, when I first started in consulting, my very first job, they sent all the consultants through a group called Speakeasy, and they did the same thing. You did all these talks, and you got recorded. I mean, of all the memories, like this is really, it's really, really close. And and as you're saying, Oliver, too, like you realize your pace or, you know, your your eye contact is strange. I mean, there is nothing more powerful and useful, though, than actually seeing yourself recorded because you don't realize these things you do. But here's the deep seated takeaway that still sits with me. I think the ability to speak well comes from a very deep place. It comes not just from, as we're saying, knowing your material, being excited about, you know, whatever you're talking about. But like when I was watching those tapes, you could see my lack of confidence. You could see my not feeling like I had permission to speak and I had to keep like filling the space. So for me, there was also a very personal taking control of that space and that conversation that you really see when you're when you're speaking. It's more than just about the technical speaking. It's like I said, it's really about who we are and how we feel about ourselves and the topic, I think. Can I just ask a quick question? Because both of you just described what felt like stories where you performed poorly in that spot right why was that not a career-ending move i mean how come that you didn't just go off and do something else at that time the thing is you got better that's what happened right and being willing to have that crappy first draft being willing to be bad at it to begin with and then practice oh my god it's practice you got better at it and that's what happens when you do this and all you have to do is be willing for the first time for it not to be good 
And then you can be great at this. Be be, be prepared to fail. I think it's, a, it's in general a whole mindset thing that's scary for people. But if you, and in this in these instances, I think Wendy and I were describing sort of training courses rather than you know, actual live speaking gigs. But of course, you improve the more you do. Right. But I, I, I get really frustrated with people who are amazing at their jobs that know, like privately, will have an amazing conversation with you. But the thought of getting on stage and sharing that story, sharing their work, they just won't do it. I mean, like, you know, with the, with the channel I run with Architect Tomorrow, there's some amazing people that I'd love to get, you know, recorded. But even just doing a video recording is is, is too scary for them, even though they're, they're, they're world leaders, at, you know, data architecture or whatever it might be. And it's just if they could just get out of that fixed mindset that oh, that's something scary that I'm not going to do and just grow, it, it would be would be incredible for them and for the community that, that we operate in as well. Is, is this like, you know, I, I've often heard right, that people don't like hearing their own voice recorded playing back, right? I know I hate it, <laughs> just to be clear, right? I hate it. I hate the sound of my voice when I'm hearing it back, right? And it's because it's different than what I hear in my head, right? For some reason. And it's, it's like a, it's like a cognitive dissonance or so. I don't know what it is, right? But, I, I always thought that when I was listening to myself on the radio, it sounded like I was listening to a 12-year-old girl. And I was like, this is just terrible. This is terrible. I think everyone hates their own voice, don't they? And I, I've kind of had to, I, I, I've kind of made my peace with it. I, I don't love it. But I've had to edit myself so much with podcasting that I, I've had to kind of get over that. Otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do what I've done over the last couple of years. Well, there's, there's the thing that Wendy was talking about, right. Which is, and I think, you know, I know I do this, but we all know that I do this, which is the the filler, right. The, I just did it. I, right. Right. Um, um, huh? uh, what, uh, you know, right. There's all of that kind of thing that goes on. Um, and <laughs> is it because we don't know what we're going to say next? Uh, is it, no, is it, I'll tell you, it's, actually, that's a, those words, right? And that's there's a word for that, and the linguists use to describe it. But you're using it to hold the platform open. Basically, I when I hear you go, um, you're saying, Phil, do not start talking yet. I've got more to say, and I'm not ready for you to start talking yet. So that I know you're just holding the speech floor open so that we, you can talk. But, but if I'm presenting, I don't need to do that. But I'm just doing something here. Which apparently, you know, if you kind of you can use body language. The interesting thing, I know you probably heard this, is that over ninety percent of of speaking is nonverbal, and actually, physical kind of you know using your hands and gestures and things are a way of pausing without getting interrupted. But I think it's it's almost a super advanced level version of what we're talking about, right? I think having the confidence to pause, mm -hmm. use some sort of body language to sort of hold the conversation is. But we're probably drifting out of public speaking and more into sort of, you know, in getting more interactive, engaging conversation. Well, so let's let's talk about let's talk about then public speaking, right? What what works? Is is it individualistic? Is it like it depends on the person, or there's some tried and true things? Phil, I'm, Phil, you've been on the radio, you've been on TV, you're a, you're the Lord of Sealand. I mean, you've got all of these, right? <laughs> No, no, no. But I, I think the thing, the thing to know is that your style doesn't have to be like somebody else's, right? For you, everyone's got their own speed and pace. So, for example, you know, I can listen to people who are bang, 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 right? They, their cadence is very fast and they fill it. And I can admire those speakers. But it took me a long time to realize 
that's not my tone and cadence. That's not natural for me. My natural speed, my cadence is avuncular, right? I mean, I'm going to sit, offer a little bit of advice, give you a chance to process it maybe. When I get excited, I get excited and I'll lean back. And I just have to be okay with me doing the way I do. And some people like it and some won't. And so what? And who's next? I mean, you know, there's there's a pattern for that and folks will find their way through it. And that's okay. So I think in this is find folks that you admire and you feel like their tone is yours. It's a place where you could be and think, all right, well, what does that sound? How does that work? How are they doing this? How are they developing it? And as you know, both Wendy and Oliver have had the luck of being in places where people cared about whether you were good at it or not. And they'd offer to train you or they'd offer to let you practice and do that. I mean, I've got multiple friends who are in the business, right, of teaching people to speak publicly. I don't know if you need any of that. I think what you really need more than anything is the date of your next presentation and the idea that I'm going to go practice in front of that audience and just go do it. So, so we learn by doing. Is that is that it? Like everything else in life. I mean, you know, you can't, you know, there's that book that says you can't teach a kid to write a How's it? You can't teach a kid to ride a bike at a seminar, right? It's the same thing, right? You can't learn to ride a bike by reading a book. You can't, you know, you're you're not going to become the world's greatest archer or golfer or bowler even by reading a book. You're going to get it by drawing the arrow, swinging the club, rolling the ball. Wendy, you you do a lot of your work. Oh, I'm 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 going to say something that may not be true, so feel free to tell me that I'm wrong. But um, I, it seems like you do a lot of your work uh, delivered through Teams or Zoom or some other things. Is is there a difference? Because I know you also do in-person things as well, right? So do you, are there, is there a difference between speaking in front of a group? Is this less personal? Because I can turn you off. Really good question. Well, I think a lot of just the basics of holding attention and the way of speaking and some of the things we've been talking about here, I think those are the same. But I think a lot of it comes to engagement. And engagement to me is a big part of of public speaking. And maybe it's the way I come at it as well. I actually care about the message, whatever it is, something I'm trying, an idea, a teaching. I care about it being received. I don't care about delivering it. That's only part of it. I care about it being received. And so I think engagement is key to uh, where possible. I mean, if you are able to dialogue back and forth with people, but if you're not to be able to look them in the eye or to be able to prepare ahead of time so that you have material and examples that resonate with people, I think that's the same for in-person and online. But with online, we have new ways of engaging people because you're right. It's easy to tune off. People turn the cameras off. So there I tend to do more interactive, whether it's polls or just getting people to pile on because I want them to actually be a part of this. So the engagement is the big wild that the wild card for me there. I agree with Wendy on the interactivity piece. And I think that was the big challenge for me with the shift to online meetings because of the, you know, the pandemic. Um was that lack of feedback, like being able to like instantly look at a room or, you know, a table that you're presenting to and speaking to and just better get some kind of non-visual clue straight away whether, whether what you were saying was being well received or not. It's been so hard doing large sort of webinars where you people have got their video off. It's really quite frustrating, you know, as a speaker to kind of not have that, that kind of feedback because I think I don't like to just talk at people. I like, I like to either get 
ideally verbal, but also non-verbal sort of you know cues as to how well it's going. So I think it is different. But there are other ways for a person that's less confident to sort of cheat. I mean, like right now, I could have notes. Uh, you know, I could just be reading off a script. I think it's sometimes fairly obvious when people are doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can kind of just look like you're reading from something. But there are things you can kind of do to kind of make it easier to kind of do do a webinar. Um, but yeah, no, it's certainly different. And I think, but I think there are a number of things that that hold true of of, of both. The big thing for me as well, though, is it's not uh, as much as it's about conveying a message. I think it's about building trust and um, rapport in yourself as a speaker. So um, it, you know, maybe something doesn't list. Uh, the big thing, uh, uh, the big cliche I know in this, I've heard in this space is it's people don't remember what you say; they remember how you made them feel. Yeah. And so, actually, if you're quite charismatic and you come across well and you come across confidently and people trust you feel you're a trustworthy person because of the way you've come across then that's almost yeah that is as important as the right slides or you know the, the right key points it's it's building that sort of relationship even though there may be hundreds of people in the room creating that sort of space and that connection is is really really important regardless of whether it's online or, or virtual yeah that was one of the things that was that was one of my traumas right is uh you know, 05, 06, 07, right? And like uh, some of the training that you would go through in some of these firms, you know, where you have the simulated case that may run for a couple of days or something, and you're interviewing actors posing as the CIO and he's got this problem and, you know, all this sort of thing. And I remember being in one room and I was with the group of, of folks, uh, most of them are, I think, at McKinsey now, and I am not. So I don't know what that means exactly. But the, the point here is that I remember sitting there and I remember thinking, I've got the data. This is the data. This guy needs to consume the data and hear my data. And I remember this other guy who was like riffing about like whatever the hell it was, but he was establishing rapport, right? He was establishing trust, right? He was establishing, he's asking about the picture of the guy's family. And, and that was all part of the exercise. It was staged that way, right? In order to generate that kind of, and I remember thinking, what a bunch of BS, right? Just take the data and use my data. I've got the data. But and that just shows the different type of person that you are to, to the, the other people that you really have to engage with. Well, now I've, I've gone probably too far the other way, right? Whereas like now everything with me is conversation, right? <laughs> Data. Who cares about the data? How do you feel? I, I, I think How do you feel, client? I think what's beautiful though is if you can do it is data-driven storytelling. So if you can marry the right visuals and stats and data, don't bomb, don't bombard some people with, with complex slides or complex graphics. But if you can kind of make your point, tell your story, but support it with the right data points and do what's known as data-driven storytelling, which I think the journalists that I read online that do this well are incredible. That's the holy grail. I, I I can't say I'm there yet, but I think if you can if you can kind of marry those two things, then I think you get the head and the heart. You get the people that are very analytical because you've given them the evidence, but you've then also told a story around it, which gets the the the, you know, the more emotional types. So it's about kind of constructing a story and a a talk track that will engage both you know all types of people in the audience, really, which is hard. Well, but but so Phil, I mean, when you you know when you're talking to I've been in some sessions, right? Where you've got 50 people, 30, what's the limit of Zoom? 36, whatever it is, right? On the screen. And oh, there's several, yeah. several screens of people kind of thing, right? 
And so you're you're not able to look people in the eye like you might be able to do if you're standing in front of, a, of an audience. Does that is that make a difference from your perspective or, or how, I guess, how do you deal with that if it does make a difference? What, what, or let me, let me rephrase it for the cats out there. What would they do? Right. Yeah. Learn from yeah. what you've learned. Well, no, I think you do have to want to figure out how to modify yourself in that spot. You know, I thought it was interesting because Oliver brought up like in a large audience, you know, that the stakes are lower in a way. And I was thinking about the first time I ever did like a really large auditorium and it was black. So you could only see the front two rows of people. And so that was a thing where I did, you know, and I taught myself, you know, I, I walked out and I wasn't expecting that. And I was like, okay, what am I going to do here? And, uh, you know, I taught myself to do the same way that you do, like what I'm doing right now, which is, Chris, I look like I'm talking to you right in your eye. But the fact is, I can't see you because your face is over here. I'm looking in the camera when I'm talking to you. And so, and I do this for your comfort, not mine. I taught myself because we did so much TV to look in there. So I think in that bit, you gotta be, you do in fact have to figure out what you're going to do in order to manage the audience, whether they're on Zoom or they're on something else and say, okay, well, there are gonna be times when I'm doing this and I'm it's direct address and I'm talking to you. And it might be like, I ask you a question and I'm gonna pull back and grab the screen in and see if I can see the top 50 of you, which is it's as many as I can see on a single Zoom screen. And you can monkey around with it and I can get possibly get a hundred on the screen, but, I, but it doesn't really matter because somewhere between 25 and 50 is all I can challenge anyway. And the thing is, am I talking to those 50? Great. Then hopefully the rest are along for the ride. That's interesting, right? Which is um, what are the pitfalls or what are the issues with public speaking when you are unable to gauge the response of the audience. So like, as you said, when when you're speaking to the camera, like I'm speaking to the camera, you're not looking at me. So I could be making faces. I could be like responding with, you know, gestures, you know, and all kinds of whatever, right? And and you're not picking up those visual clues. How does that impact you as a, as a speaker, right? Because it could be the same in just a conference room with 20 people. You're not necessarily looking at everyone because you're worried about the slide or whatever, whatever it might be, right? How do you pick up those visual clues if, if, if you can't see everybody? Yeah, not, I feel like we're like right in the nuts and bolts and it's important to know, like, is this landing with the audience or not, right? So the thing is you teach yourself to do it out of your peripheral vision. And if you're in an audience where you actually can see the audience, what you do is you move your eyes from member to member and you go, you pick one then you move to another one, you move to another one because you don't want to stare anybody down, but you do want to figure out, am I doing it? And you. Your cadence for that has to be in a way like they feel like you engage with them. So I'll look at Wendy for a second, then I look at Oliver for a second, and then you do that bit. But basically, that's the way you move around and make sure you didn't just lose the audience. And sometimes you're gonna, and you just got to figure that out. By the way, my favorites are, the, I think about the ones that I've done over the years, and you know, big audiences are fun, some others are fun, but the audience where you're delivering bad news into, you know, say, 50 or 100 people, uh, you know, I always called it the bullet dance because it's the kind of thing where you're going to get up and you're going to give this presentation and then people are going to complain. And, uh, you know, delivering bad news in a corporate environment, those are exciting, exciting 
uh, trips there. So you mentioned, uh, you know, the different views. Can, can you give us a quick camera one, camera two? Do you have, do you have that set up on your ATEM? You can like, hey. Oh, you mean like what you look like to me? Yeah, I can't show you what you look like to me. I thought you'd have that all ready to go. No, yeah, I, I don't today. It's funny because I almost set it up and I thought I could do the POV, but now I can't really do that. But yeah, that's that thing is like, you know, I've got your, I have you on my left and I got Wendy and Oliver on my right and then a confidence monitor in front of me. And, but it, you know, the thing is, it, it, I, it, you got to figure out how you're going to deal with the audience and you're going to figure out what makes them comfortable. And what I've found so far is make it look like you're looking them in the eye. But doesn't it, doesn't it also, it seems like maybe I'm wrong, correct me, right? But like, don't you also have to be comfortable with yourself and how you're coming across? Or is that something you can learn your way around or just deal with for 20 minutes or whatever? I don't know. Um, that, take, uh, that takes practice and courage, I think. You know, I do. I really do think you have to do, you do have to be comfortable with yourself, but that is the hard work. And so I hadn't mentioned that part yet. But uh, again, you know, here's the neat thing about doing this over Zoom. You can complain, but what do you, then what? I'm still here. I think it's all good. There's um, one thing linked to that on Zoom and Teams where some people have recommended turning off self use. That's what I, what I do for these. Um, if you can see yourself, that's not a natural thing to be like, you know, see yourself as you're speaking. It, it's quite off-putting. Um, I think it... You know, Speak for yourself, Oliver. I mean, you know... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, so that's one of the things that... that do you do I that, Oliver? Do you actually take your own picture off the screen? I, I hide it. On Zoom, I, I hide selfies. Yeah. I mean, I, I know it's an option. I'm just scared to death that I'm going to screw something up. That's the reason I leave mine on. You know, it's not my hair. Obviously, I've given up on it. I might it's switch it back on momentarily to check something, but yeah, no, I, I, um, I generally set it up and then turn it off because I'd rather. So I have you lined up as close to the camera as possible, so that I, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not looking down the camera like this, but it's close enough because I want to better see the reaction of the people that I'm talking to. Isn't um, that interesting? Well, but again, that's what we're saying, right? That works for you, right? Yeah. In your context. And that's how you're able to communicate to your audience. When, Wendy, what do you do? You've got to have some trick. What, what works for you in public speaking? No trick. No, no trick. No new tricks that we've talked about. I mean, it, the self stuff comes from the confidence in the material and the confidence you have the right to speak. That may not sound like a big deal, but this is kind of a little bit getting into culture and women like we have to learn that. <laughs> we have to learn that. Um it is exactly what Phil's saying. It is practice, practice, practice. That's been my secret is you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And you, as you do that, it sort of lowers the stakes and it seems more natural. And you just kind of get in this rhythm of this thing that you do. Um, and, and knowing and caring about the subject matter and the people, uh, you know what? That's my secret sauce. I love what I do. I care about it. I think it makes a difference to people. And whoever is on my screen or in front of me, I care about them, right? So for me, then it just becomes a little bit more of a, of a, of a passion passion thing from there. So we've talked about things that work for individuals, things that we should do. We talked about like enunciation and clarity and engage the audience and look at people. What, what should we not be doing in public speaking, whether it's consulting or not? Like what, what, are, what are some things we shouldn't do? Wendy, 
Do you have anything that you that you get up there and you're like, I got to make sure I don't do this or uh, whatever? Right. I have a lot of those things for sure. Like the fidgety things or the the, the filler things. I have all of that. And, you know, I'm just going to go with what we said here. We're, we're humans. We're not perfect. So we just try to be cognizant and get better. Um, I have a whole list of those things. Um, but generally speaking, you, you don't want to tell us what they are. Oh, I have, I, there's a whole list from ums to whatever. Absolutely. Um, but I think, um, I think it's, 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 oh, it's a little bit of what I said before, but on the other side of don't do's, it's making it about the people. I think there's nothing worse than someone who keeps talking and talking and talking with no feedback. And I'm not talking about a speech I'm delivering and nobody has, but like it's it's going over people's heads. They won't give up the floor. They've talked way too long about themselves and what they do. Like to me, that's the don't do. It's sort of be about, unless, unless it's an interview of you and who you are. I think it's about the thing. And I think it's about the audience. Are, are those all tips for me that you're giving? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Not at all. Not for a second. <laughs> yeah, a, a piece of that, right? It's yeah. right where Wendy was. And, then, you know, if you were going to ask Phil, pet peeves. Um, <clears throat> and she just kind of had brushed across one of them <clears throat> that I think you kind of joked about. And that is, yeah, I think it's really easy, particularly in the consulting space, to tell a tale and to go in front of an audience and make yourself the hero of the story. And that's, that is a pet peeve for me, right? Because... The client was the story, was the hero of this story. And I think it's super easy to forget that you are Obi-Wan. You are not Luke in your stories. And you ought to be telling the tale like, you know what? We came in and we helped this cat and they did this thing, but they they managed to pull this off. And uh, I have zero uh, interest in watching a guy talk to me about how awesome he is. Zero. And that that extends to overselling the company or product that you work for, I think as well, or the consulting company that you you work for, I think you don't need to do that. It should come across in the material and, and the client story or whatever it is you're talking about. That's where the, oh, these guys look great. You don't need to do that sort of pre-padding. Maybe throw up a logo of who you're about and set some context. But the ones I hate are the ones where people spend the first you know, 10, 15 minutes talking about not necessarily themselves, but how amazing their company is. It's like, well, demonstrate that in what you're going to talk about. It's this whole, I know it's a bit of a, you know, a, bit of a buzz, but the whole thought leadership thing should be more about the content and less about, you know, the kind of marketing and selling you know, at first. So that's that's my don't, big don't do really is you introduce yourself, maybe introduce your company, but then get into the heart of why should the audience care? Like a hook statement for me is massive. It was one of the big things that was on the training many years ago. To say something like, not very controversial, but something that's going to grab everyone's attention and what going to get them to want to listen to you for the rest of your slot, yeah. and then you know build the story and validate that statement that you made at the end. So, yeah, but I think the whole thing about worrying about do you walk around the stage too much, do you fidget, that makes you human, and I think you can obsess too much about that. Just focus on delivering the best way you can, and I think over time those nervousnesses will naturally go away because you'll feel more confident. And you won't need to do the the things that you do. Um, you know, those fidgety things. So, so we've talked a, a little bit about like Oliver, you talked about like the content, right? Itself. We talked about like some of these human ticks and, and things that we have. 
there are probably, you know, well, there aren't probably, there are things around projection and right, all, all of the standard things. If you just Google top five things for public speaking, I'm sure they're all listed there, right? We don't have to rehash those. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the thought I was having is, are some of these things, things that any old introvert could do? Or are some of these things, things that, well, you really need a little bit of extrovert in you in order to accomplish true connection, right? Sell me this pen, right? Like that kind of thing, right? I, I, I think know. some anybody. <laughs> I, I, I just quickly on this one. I, I think some people find this natural, you know, more natural, right? Some people just can just talk, and and they have maybe they get they can deal with their nerves better or what have you. I think other people need need more help and more training and more coaching on 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 this. But I think I truly believe everyone is capable of doing it. Whether everyone gets the same level of comfort with it is another matter. I agree with Oliver. I do think that everyone, I mean, we're also humans, right? So I feel like this is something we can do. Um, it's a matter of learning tricks, learning what works for you, feeling good in your skin. And I think there's also the times when it's really okay to say, I got a partner over here that likes to do that part. I like to do this part. So everybody needs to be good at it to some extent, but we can also work together as a team and lean on each other sometimes too. I think from a skill standpoint, just to, in this, from a skill standpoint, you can do this whether you're an extrovert or an introvert. The question is the act of doing it. Is it charging your battery or depleting it? That's the only difference. So you can learn and do this. It might feel like work and it might feel like play, but you definitely can do this. I love that. That's a powerful, affirming message to end on. Yeah. Right? It's like anybody can do this. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think I, I look back on when I was not good at any of this, I mean, arguably, maybe I'm still not, but the point would be that like, I look at the past and it's like, God, I, I really looked like that. I spoke like that. I interacted like that. Um, where I would think like, you know, the, the, the content was, you sh if you don't get it, there's nothing I can do and to hell with you and I'm out of here. Right. Versus now where it's like, I'm going to, I'm going to, help you and I'm going to, even though you may know the content, chances are you didn't open the attachment. So I'm going to tell you what I told you, right? And tell you again, and et cetera. Um, and so I think, you know, learning that over time, I don't know if that came with practice. I don't know if that watching yourself, you know, I look back at episode, the early episodes of this podcast and I'm like, what are you doing? Right. <laughs> Some of that stuff. I mean, maybe this episode, I'll look back and be like, what, what are you doing? Stop touching your beard, right? Whatever. Um, but I think all of that is like the learning process, right? And I think that learn by doing is important. And especially if you're in a role where some of this, quite frankly, is expected of you to be in your toolkit, to be part of your skill set, right? You've got to know how to do some of these things. Um, and if you really, really get paralyzed on stage or and paralyzed in front of people. I mean, maybe, maybe some of these jobs aren't for you. I mean, you know, I'd like to think anyone can learn it, but maybe there are people that can't, I don't know. Um, anyway, that was sort of my, my last thought on that, but guys, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate it as always.
Juliana, Wendy Keen, Oliver Crunk. I'm Chris Lockhart. Thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. We'll see you next time. There he is, the man of the myth, the legend. Ladies and Baron. gentlemen, it's a Baron. Sir, Sir Lordiano. Where are you? I am at the beach. Oh, good God. Dude, this is all, all you do is vacation. I'm just <laughs> saying. Work <laughs> smart, not hard, right? Heart, luck, heart. And then we uh, worked our way back through the Scottish mainland. Uh, went to Loch Ness. You know, we're really, really, the really touristy parts of Scotland, uh, Glencoe and stuff. And uh, yeah, did, got, got did, did you did you take a picture of like your arm, the Loch Ness monster? <laughs> I don't think I didn't think of that. I should have should have done that. But you. I've been to Loch Ness a couple of times, and um, the other times I've been to Scotland, I've been cycling through it. I've done I've done like the length of the British Isles a couple of times when I was fitter and younger. But um, when you look at Loch Ness, you can kind of tell why people think there's a monster in there because the waves, just yeah. the way the waves look, it makes you know, you, could, you could easily be tricked into thinking there was something that looked humped that was sort of out there. You know that it's very moody and atmospheric. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, Phil. I know you do this as part of your business model, right? Like, you were trying to avoid using the word "shtick" in a sentence. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think that's part of it. So, hey, I didn't get the document. Um, oh. I don't know where I'm, who you I'm shared it to. I'm struggling to log in, unfortunately. So I'm, I'm, my I'm logged into both of my Google accounts that I think you know about, and I don't see it in either one of them. Let me just go double check real quick. Like I said, I did it from an iPhone on the beach. And the only reason I took the iPhone to the beach and not my brand new Google Pixel is the iPhone already had sand all embedded in it. So I thought that was probably um, the better phone to take to the beach. <laughs> all right, uh, we get that little bit of mucus up. I'll wash it down with a nice Sam Adams. I just like this at 11 o'clock, of course. I'm, on, yeah, I'm at the beach. I'm at you're the at the beach, and so it's okay. Anytime after 9 a.m. is noon somewhere. I had oh, the meetings I need to have. Yeah, I already had the meetings I needed to have, so, yeah. Locational, not temporal, yeah. I kept wanting to say imposter syndrome because it was in the Google Doc, and I thought that was really good because that's like a buzzword, but maybe I'll put it in the, the write-up. Yeah, that was kind of what I was referring to about people People were more confident if they know what they the subject matter. Yeah. I want to say Oliver inspired in me a little thought about like how people get their PowerPoints wrong, you know, and it, it, it were the presentations and they're always like beginning with like their credentials. And if Steven Spielberg did that, the first five minutes of Indiana Jones would be us looking at his diploma. Right. It would just be like a slow pan over. Look at all the students' credentials. Oh my God! Look at this. Look, at, he's been at this museum in his college. Oh, it's all. Or you know. Star Wars would be uh, all the kills that Darth Vader has. Uh, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. the, the other one I really like, right, and this is maybe more specifically to consulting, is the the NASCAR slide, right? The the logo slide of like here are all the clients we've worked with, and like the sales guys, they want to lead with that, and I'm yeah. like. Guys, nobody gives a crap. They just assume if you're here in the room, you've worked with some pretty important people. You don't have to talk about them. Peace. Groovy. Awesome.
Good I like that one. That was good. Uh, yeah. Me too.